Okay, so we're going to say a little bit about Moggallana. Moggallana was the one of the two chief disciples of the Buddha, and uh, he there's a lot to learn. I almost, I mean, it really parallels what Marianne was saying in a way, or, or ties in, because awakening did not happen easily for him, and I bet we might feel the same, right? It doesn't happen easily, and he used to fall asleep. And he struggled with attachments, and he was one of the Buddha's great disciples. So, and also he made mistakes early in his life or lifetimes, and nonetheless awakened. So, these are uh, you can kind of meta however you want to look at lifetimes, kind of work with it metaphorically, but it really helps us helps us work with our own our own journey. Um, in one lifetime, he tried to divert people from an earlier Buddha, and another one, he killed his own parents, and he awakened. So, you know, it shows that God knows what we've done in former lifetimes. Um, so let's uh, <laughs> do the best we can now. <clears throat> but he persevered, and he evolved into one of the Buddha's chief disciples, and he was the, uh, of the two, the other being Sariputta, he was the one with the greatest psychic powers, Moggallana was, and also the Buddha said he was the one that could take people to Arhatship, where Sariputta could only take them to being a stream enterer. So he was, in some ways, the greatest of them in a different way, at least in terms of that. So about them, the Buddha said in Majjhima Nikaya 141, he said, cultivate the friendship of Sariputta and Moggallana bhikkhus. Associate with Sariputta and Moggallana. They are wise and helpful to their companions in the holy life. Sariputta is like a mother. Moggallana is like a nurse. Sariputta trains others for the fruit of stream entry. Moggallana for the supreme goal. And I'm not going to talk about his psychic powers too much. Just maybe a story or two, because who knows how to think about those. And, but more about his journey, but a little bit about the psychic powers. Because how could you not once you said he had them? Um, and he was, uh, you know, you know, read the suttas. The two of them were indispensable to the Buddha. They, he really sent them out to do things he couldn't do. They worked really closely together. He, uh, and especially when there were, you know, the all the rules of the vinaya emerged because of people doing weird stuff. They didn't start off with a vinaya. Just someone would do something weird, and he'd have to have a rule. Well, don't do that. And so people did all kinds of funny things. So then we end up with 227 rules of things not to do. Um, and also there were there was difficulty within the sangha. So and it's good good to you know when we when we when we go through hard times, I find it really almost like refreshing to know how hard it was during the life of the Buddha, because then our hard times aren't different from those hard times. And he was a Buddha then, so why can't we? Um, for instance, the two of them, he sent them to expel six months who refused to abide by the rule of not eating after noon. And there's another great story where 500 monks had run off. Devadatta, the evil cousin Devadatta, who tried to kill the Buddha several times, and a bunch of monks ran off with them, and they went and got him back. They, they were Devadatta, so he thought that they also joined him, so he just took a nap. And so Sariputta did this incredible talk about the Dharma, and they went, oops, wait a minute, and they went back to the Buddha. So they had they had work to do. And when Moggallana died about six months before the Buddha, 
There's this really beautiful, I can't remember exactly, but he, the Buddha said the Sangha seemed empty without him, having this awakened being there, just it, it were right there with him, you know. So he, it's kind of the most, the closest thing to grief you hear the Buddha say is how empty the Sangha seemed without Moggallana. And, you know, like many great spiritual leaders, and like the Buddha, he was born into relative privilege. His boyhood name, Moggallana, his boyhood name was Kolita. His father was a merchant, and he was groomed, you know, to follow in his father's footsteps. St. Francis was like that too, by the way. You know, he was, his father was a wealthy merchant in Assisi, and St. Francis freaked out his dad by deciding to emulate Christ. So it um, seems to be a pattern. And, you know, it, and because part of it happens is you're in the middle of wealth, and you start to see it rings hollow, and you want to do something different. That's what happened to these guys. Um and so, so Kalita and Upatisa, who would later become Shariputta, the, the, the second one, they were friends, and they had a they had this similar experience of disillusionment and dispassion, the very things that launch us into understanding that samsara isn't going to get anywhere. And as the suttas say, there was this three-day annual festival that was kind of the high point of the social year and it was all this stuff going on and they had the special seats because they were wealthy and they enjoyed it for two days but late that night before the third day both of them started thinking what are we doing here what is the point of this it just became empty and all these beautiful dancing girls and you know the whole deal and all the musicians and they're realizing you know these they're all going to get old and die everything's going to get old and die what are we doing what's the point of this and they decided to go seek enlightenment and made a pact and left pretty much like the buddha and started searching they didn't know about the buddha at that point but they were searching and they made a promise that if either one of them found an awakened being they'd tell the other one because they sort of went off in different directions so that's you know i think that's relevant because in a sense that's a choice we continually remake moment by moment you know, in terms of all the stuff, all the diversions here in this season, all kind of giddy stuff, which is cool, it's fine. But do we get sucked in? What do we do? Or, you know, cyber trucks. How much do we care about cyber trucks? And, you know, this is a new, a new Tesla truck, by the way, in case you're not a motorhead. But how, you know, how much attention do we give it? Any attention? To what do we do? And in our world, there's, you know, the, back in the commune, we used to have a word we called tinsel for all the spiritual trappings, and we call it tinsel. It's always stuck with me because I kind of like that word. So all the tinsel, you know, how much do we see through it and let it go and decide to put ourselves on the path to find out what we can be? Just like Marianne was saying, you know, it's like she's been through a long, long life and it's clear what's important. But, but we have to keep remaking that choice moment by moment in our lives. And the fact that you're all here, you know, you could be, I don't know, two days before Christmas, you could be all kinds of, I mean, it's fine things, I'm, I'm sure, but we chose, we chose to be together because we're continue, we're making a choice here about the deeper work and the freedom it can bring. Kind of the uh, emperor's clothes fall away. And, you know, certainly when I look at people on the path, they make 
progress often by making choices and by shedding stuff that would be distracting. And certainly we've been, you know, because of the monks, the Clear Mountain monks, that some of us are around quite a bit these days, it's fascinating to be around them because they're real, you know, the real human beings you can hang out with when they're young and they, you can relate to them and you watch just how much they've dropped and, and they don't care. You know, all this, a lot of the stuff that kind of we would get involved again, they don't, they don't do, they don't, they can't handle, they don't handle money. They can't buy food. They can't have food overnight. They have to eat before noon. They don't have a car, all that stuff. And it's, there's, you sort of drop all that away and then this freedom emerges. It's pretty, pretty fascinating to watch. So that's what these guys did. But then what do we do? I think what's fascinating about Mogolana is the prior mistakes are so much a part of the story. You know, it's hard to know with these stories, what's the chicken and the egg? Does the story come first? Did it actually happen? Or did you make up the story to illustrate a point? I don't know. But have we, have any of us ever felt that we were just too compromised to ever get there? You know, we're just too much of a train wreck. Forget it. I am never going to be awakened. There's too much baggage, right? We could, we could think that. We could think that. And he might, he might have thought that, but he didn't. Because this is a repeated refrain in the great stories of the Dharma, is people that by any measurement are way worse than anything we've ever imagined. As Mogalana, who killed 999 people, the first serial killer in history, became awakened, tried to kill the Buddha. And then in Buddhist tradition, there's Amilarepa, who killed all of his uncles and nieces and nephews because of how some of the elders had behaved towards his mother, and he became. So, you know, no matter what, we can go ahead. We can go ahead. And sometimes those give us an ability to empathize, you know, the things we've done, the things we've seen, and we can relate to to others who are difficult. So in in, in, in terms of the story of Mogalana, in a previous eon, he was a version of Mara. And Mara was a great obstructor of the Buddha. And they know when the Buddha awakens, Mara is trying to stop him in all kinds of ways. So Mogalana himself was in some way a version of Mara. His name Mara Dusi. And the Buddha at that time was Kakusananda. You know, supposedly there's like Buddhas over many eons and they appear and disappear. It might be pre-Big Bang. Sometimes I wonder how you think about that, you know? There was sometimes when they talk about Big Bangs, there's a whole school of thought that this happens repeatedly and then there's another world system before that. You just don't know. So we can we can have an open mind. But I mean this gets really arcane, but supposedly this Mara took possession of a boy and that a possessed boy then attacked Kushananda's chief disciple and threw this Mogalana version into a hell realm for thousands of years. And then he became, you know, but he still emerged and awakened. So I hope that doesn't sound too esoteric, but it's just, it's just, it helps me, you know, I just think about it, you know, just in terms of breathing that in, that we always can. Or whatever, you know, even whatever political figure we may disagree with the most intensely, that person could awaken. I, I really tried. I, 
do that in my heart and head sometimes. People that I just find completely reprehensible what they're doing, I won't name any names, but they could awaken. They can awaken. They may awaken. So to really bring that into our hearts and think about ourselves that way. So they found the Buddha. We'll go into the whole story. But he and Sariputta found the Buddha. And according to suttas, they each had 500 students of their own already by that time because they'd been practicing, wandering around looking. They were very amazing practitioners. So they showed up for the Buddha with the 500 students. And if you read the suttas a lot, somehow there's a lot of 500s. <laughs> Not for the white things sorted out, but 500 kind of means many is one, one interpretation I've read. That's why it is always just not like carefully counted 499, 500, okay, let's go. So let's just say many disciples, they showed up and uh, and when they met the Buddha, he gave them a Dharma talk. And in both cases, all those 500 awakened, except for Moggallanda and Sariputta, because they had so much past karma. It's like, wouldn't that be a kind of a bummer? You've got all your students thinking that you're the awakened, you're, you're, pretty, you're pretty cool, and then you all wake up except for those two. Make this stuff up, right? So maybe it's true. So, so Moggallanda, point is, for us, he redoubled his efforts. He refused to give up. He saw the possibility because finally they had found an awakened being. And in his practice, he was, sorry, so in... The Buddha, he ranged about 500 miles, 350, I guess it is. And in the eastern, up the eastern side, where there's Bodhgaya and then the Rajgir up there and Vulture Peak is kind of in the eastern side, which was the Magadha Kingdom now. But if you, can see, if you ever go to India, you can see there's this whole area where he was a lot. And Sariputta awakened what's called the, um, the Boar's Cave which is right below Vulture's Peak. It's like just 100 yards below. That's where he awakened. Mogalana was off in the forest nearby. But his difficulty was he kept falling asleep. Isn't that sort of mundane? Nodding out while he's trying to practice. Anybody ever have that happen, by the way? Yeah, so you're in good company, right? You're in good company. He was falling asleep. And the Buddha, because the Buddha realized his potential, he actually, according to this, he sort of manifested, kind of just, you know, Buddha could do that. He showed up without physically going there and, and gave him a bunch of instructions about how to deal with sleep, which actually have become in the, enshrined in the teachings because this is a problem for a lot. So this is one of the gifts, the little side gifts. And the Buddha said, to let go, you may have read this before, to, if you're sleepy, to let go of thoughts, to pull in your earlobes, pull in your earlobes, to wash your face, to look up at the sky, to fill your mind with brightness, and if none of this works, take a nap. And those are the teach those are the instructions for sleepiness, just because of this teaching for Mogulana. I think it's kind of sweet. So we can all use Mogulana's Mogulana's instructions from the Buddha when we're falling asleep. So that's actually very handy. But once he got Patsis, he attained liberation in a week through determined effort. So Go for it, folks. Yeah, and you know, I'm reading, I gotta say, I'm reading, I don't know if you know much about, I'm just, I'm learning um, 
the history of Thai forest Buddhism. Because in the 19th century in Thailand, the general stance was, don't bother meditating. That worked at the time of the Buddha. It doesn't work now. And people can't awaken. That's what people thought. It had sort of really ground to, it had gotten very ossified, Theravada Buddhism. And then Ajahn Mun was this one person who just decided to do what the Buddha said. And he was like incredibly intense, just went off in the forest. And that's when Thailand was basically all forest. And he spent his whole life wandering. Spent his whole life wandering. But he was just unbelievably determined, practiced night and day, did Budo as a mantra constantly. It was, it was just fierce. And he awakened. He became an arhat, and he became incredibly famous because people realized, oh my God. And, and Achan Cha did something similar wandering through the forest, and he met Ajahn Mun for three days only. He arrived, stayed for a whole other day, and left the other day. Achan Cha is the great teacher of many of the great Western disciples, so that's not that long ago. You know, as a real lineage of people, because Achan Cha himself was incredibly fierce in a lot of ways and was out there. And also Ajahn Bua was another disciple. So I just, it makes it real tactile here in 21st century and these people in the 19th century that brought us what we have and our possibility of awakening and how we do it. So back to Mogulana. So he, he did this. He attained liberation in a week. And I've seen, you know, my first teacher, Genla Rippa, he was a great Tibetan uh, Lama who came to Seattle once. I did a three-month retreat in India in 1991 in a little hut about a, two miles through the forest from his hut. It was incredible privilege. He was, Genla was amazing. And he was highly accomplished Galupa monk who was on the verge of becoming a Geshe, which is like a PhD. And once he became a Geshe, then he would be shunted into monastery administration. And he just said, I'm out of here. And he just dropped it and went off to be a solitary practitioner because he decided he wasn't going to awaken in a big monastery with administrative duties. So I, I always took that in. It's like there's an individual part of the Tibetan diaspora forced to live in northern India. And he took this step. You know, so we all have the point of all this is the choices that we make to focus on what's possible. And just as an aside, there was one cave. I, I did a three-month three retreat in, uh, I don't know if you've ever been to uh, McLeod Ganj. That's where the Tibetan exile community. And up in the, this right, I mean, the mountains, just the, the Himalayas, right up to the north, you can just stand there and look, and there's these big snow-capped things up there. And so a lot of, all kinds of, Probably, I'm sure there are still are llamas up in caves and all kinds of stuff up there. And somehow someone drew this tiny little map on a napkin where a cave was that he used to be, and me and someone else found it. This cave, so I spent three days doing retreat there, and that was pretty amazing. It was way up there, and it snowed while I was there. It was actually kind of scary, but, you know, because it was really cool. So I say this just to, to tactilize it, to bring it, bring it home, right? And Steve Armstrong, you know, a lot of us know Steve Armstrong. He practiced with the Upadita in, in, in Burma. Very fierce kind of practice. So it's that, that, you know, that determination moves us faster. But any step we take, any turning toward awakening, any turning toward mindfulness, moment by moment by moment, those are the choices. 
So whatever we can do, just keep keep turning. Mogalana does this beautiful um, proclamation of his of his life. He says, living in the forest, subsisting on alms food, delighting in the scraps to come into our bowl, let us shatter the army of death as an elephant does, a hut of reeds. A master of concentration and knowledge, Mogalana gone to perfection, a sage in the dispensation of the detached one with concentrated faculties has cut off his bonds as an elephant bursts a rotten creeper. The teacher has been served by me. The Buddha's teachings has been done. The heavy burden has been dropped. The conduit to becoming has been uprooted. That goal has been attained by me for the sake of which I have gone forth from the home life into homelessness, the destruction of all the fetters. Isn't that powerful? Just a powerful statement of what, what that is. I just love that. Very fierce, right? So, you know, I think, I mean, I think it's beautiful. We're in this little circle here because Marianne was just talking about, you know, fierce practice in the middle of setbacks. A lot of people going through what you've gone through would just be, I don't know what they could, they'd be binge watching, just trying to like mark time while life went by, I guess. And the same with you and Bruce and Sean, you know, you went through all kinds, you know, Bruce went, is it okay if I share that Bruce went through cancer and, and Sean has MS and pretty much can't, can't, move around much. You can't leave hardly or I'm not sure your current status is. So forgive me, but there's all kinds of constraints and they turn to practice. So it's, it's um, a powerful, powerful bunch of choices. And I think these great beings, they didn't just get there by happenstance. They got there by the kind of choices that we can make in, in a happy way, not to be tight and, you know, like feel bad if we don't do that all the time, but to just be inspired and keep choosing. That's the kind of way, that's the way I try to look at it. Because I, you know, I slip up and I actually know about Cybertrucks. The mere fact that I know about Cybertrucks means that, okay, sorry, I was reading about Cybertrucks. <laughs> and so maybe it's because of how deep he had to reach, I don't know, but he was considered this master of psychic powers. And he was able to tap his, his inner sense of contact to encompass the mind of others. You know, and the Buddha said, be mindful inwardly and outwardly. And we may all get hints of intuition partly because of that. You know, if you pay attention, you get more intuitive. You can see that all the time. He sort of took it to this whole other level. So he, he was, he, he knew what everyone was thinking. Well, of course, the Buddha did too, if he, if he wanted to. He didn't invade. It wasn't like, I get my understanding is the Buddha wasn't like omniscient in the sense that he knew everything all the time, everywhere, but he could, he could just pay attention. He knew what someone was thinking. He could go somewhere else. He had this ability, you could say. Mogalana was pretty much like that. And there's a couple cool, in the suttas, at one point the Buddha was dwelling with 500 monks again and all of whom are arhats. And he, Mogalanda joined the group and he just scanned everybody with his mind and realized their attainment. And this poet who was there realized what had just happened. And he, and he stood up in the group and recited this poem saying, Mogalana, great in spiritual power, encompassed their minds with his own and searching, he came to see their minds fully released without acquisitions. So it kind of brings, it wasn't just a bunch of monks sitting there, he saw that they were arhats. You know, and the more, the more we clear our minds and the more we develop compassion, so we're turning toward the needs of others, 
not being self-absorbed, but kind of leaning outwards. Then this, this in, in incremental ways, this happens in our lives too, or even with our partners. You know, I mean, like Ellen and I going through this thing we've gone through. I've just been like listening to her and feeling what's going on with her and just trying to tune in and respond. And, and uh, I mean, she's been so, I'm not saying anything special, but it felt like there's a lot of, a lot of like, oh, oh, you know, intuitive kinds of things because of our practice. So it, it manifests for all of us. It's not about me. It manifests for all of us, just getting out of our way. So I look at what Mogalana demonstrates as helping to inspire us. And there are some funny, funny uh, stories. There's one when uh, Sariputta was deep in meditation and Mogalanda saw a demon come and pounding on Sariputta's head. But Sariputta didn't have psychic powers. So Mogalanda said, how you doing, Sariputta? And he said, you know, I just got this headache all of a sudden. I don't know why I got this headache. And he said, oh, that's because a demon was pounding on your head. You know, <laughs> he couldn't see it. So it's, I, I, I love these stories. I love these stories. Um, and there's another one when, uh, yeah, right, Mogolana and this monk Lakana were coming from Bulger's Peak, and Mogolana sort of smiled. And sometimes when enlightened beings just smile, you sort of say, oh, why did you just smile? And he said, well, I'm not going to tell you right now. Let's wait till we get down to where the Buddha is, because you won't believe me. So they get down to the Buddha, and then Mogolana said he'd seen this Preta spirit, that uh, an earthbound entity, who was shaped like a giant snake engulfed in, in, in flames, and he was being chased and pecked at by vultures or some other kind of spirit. So he saw this thing happening that the other guy couldn't see because he had these powers. So again, and he felt compassion for the suffering being, and also some relief that he wasn't—he wouldn't have to be born in that kind of life. So that was the smile part. It was his relief. So take that as you will. Now, getting towards the end, you know, one last parallel is his death was unpleasant, but he had equanimity. And St. Francis, I can look at a real soft spot for St. Francis. I don't know if you've read his life very much, but his life was really hard. He had, he had, he had all kinds of stuff with his eyes. He had a lot of sickness. He had problems with his eyes. He could hardly see. He was very sick. And he died very sick, but he did it with his incredible grace, because he was a highly awakened being. And Mogolano was similar. Actually, and also Genla, Genla Ripa, the one I mentioned, he developed stomach cancer, and he sort of briefly went to a hospital in Delhi or something, and they were going to put him full of chemo, and he sort of realized where this was going. He said, I'm out of here. He just left. He just left and just practiced with it, you know, until he died, but he just stayed stayed present. He just, he knew he was going to die anyway, and it just, he wasn't going to let it take him off the path. But he did, but it was hard. It wasn't like this angelic ending where everything was all sweet. So, you know, we never know, do we? So I don't know quite, you know, again, this may be metaphoric, but the story is that there was a group of naked aesthetics, so non-Buddhist naked aesthetics, who were so upset by his popularity that they hired a hitman to take him out. And six times these brigands, they arrived at his hut, and they had swords and axes. And every time Mogalanda, because of his psychic powers, he would evade them. He would like turn into a wraith and slip up the chimney or go underneath the door or hide under a stone or something. So they appear and they couldn't find him when they leave. And then they come back again. And the uh, 
sixth time, seventh time, his psychic powers failed him. And when the brigands arrived, there he was, and they killed him. So the story goes that he wasn't actually trying to evade death through all that. He was trying to keep them from suffering the karmic consequences of killing an awakened being. And he had his own, even though he's awakened, he has some little karmic imprint in there that it, it, it didn't quite work at the last bit. So he, so he died. But he had equanimity. And I think that's, you know, I mean, as an older person, and, you know, I must admit, I think about the end game more than I did when I was 30. But I thought about it a lot when I was 30, so no surprises. Um, I used to work in a nursing home way back in the commune days, so in the 70s. And I really learned a lot because there were some people there, some residents, who who had a spiritual life. Like there were a couple, a group of very lovely Christian ladies. They were so sweet. And they were just really kind, and they had this kind of radiance about them. And some of them may have had dementia. I don't know. But all I remember is they were just these bright, bright beings. There were a couple of other people who, they weren't bad people or anything, but there was one, one, one woman who I guess had been very beautiful. There was another woman who had been really a renegade in her life, and she traveled to Africa and a bunch of stuff that was kind of unusual for Western Massachusetts, but in, she was blind. And the other person was pretty much incapacitated, and they were both really bitter because they had to let go of something. They had to let go of this identity they didn't have in inner life or in inner radiance. So I, 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 I kind of brought that with me, <laughs> carried that with me all along. So, you know, thinking about how this person died in a difficult circumstance, but his inner light was still there. So I will leave it with that. Let's just sit for a moment here.